So we're doing this series, vision, mission, values, you know where we are. Vision is the big picture that we're heading towards. It's not a reality yet, but it's where we're headed. Mission is the things that we do every day to get towards that vision. And today we're going to look at our values. Our values are the essentials that shape our culture. The essentials that shape our culture. And if our vision is to see a blended family of diverse people gathering together to joyfully worship Jesus and then going out, and our mission, if we're ever going to see the vision realized, our mission is to make disciples of all people, what kind of culture are we trying to create among this church that enables us to make disciples of all people in order that we might gather together as a blended family to worship Jesus and go out to demonstrate his kingdom? What are the things, what, what are the things we have to be about? What are the essentials that have to shape our culture? What are the things that we need to emphasize? Can you go back one slide just for a minute and give them a chance to write down essentials and culture? Essentials and culture. We have three values or three essentials that shape our culture, and we're going to cover those in two weeks. And uh, today, what we're going to cover, you can go ahead and flip forward, is this. We are empowered by the gospel, and we're sent with the gospel. So our understanding of who we are is that our power doesn't come from ourselves, but from the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, and that we're also sent with the gospel. In other words, we're not a sitting church, we're a sent church. We're not here just to occupy a pew, we're here for a mission, we're here to do something, we're here to go outside the four walls. If you're still writing, it's essentials and culture. We're going to look at a lot of scripture today, but I wanted to kick us off with two from Romans 8 and 1 John. Here's Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. Say no condemnation. There is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And then our next verse comes from 1 John chapter 3. And it says this, See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children. Say, and we are. Amen. What motivates you? What drives you daily? What narrative has power over your life? This morning, I'm going to get a little deep with you. I want to ask you to reflect and to be honest with yourself about what's going on in your own heart. Uh, but to do that, I want to give you an example of someone else. We won't, we won't look internally quite yet. We'll look at someone else to answer these questions. What motivates you? What narrative has power over you? And I want to share a story about someone who had a narrative that had deep power over him. Uh, if you've seen The Greatest Showman, I've seen The Greatest Showman 279 times in my household. I can sing all the songs. You know why? Um, the Greatest Showman is about a man named P.T. Barnum, played by Hugh Jackman. And he comes from this really lowly background. He's impoverished. He gets slapped around by rich people. And his background is just kind of full of shame and kind of being an outcast in society. Well, as he grows older, he has this incredible ambition. Like, he's going to make something of himself. 
And he makes a promise to this girl, even though she's wealthy and he's poor, we're going to get married. And he does. He marries her. And he's like, listen, the world is ours. We're going to change the world. His, his ambition is unbelievable. And so he takes this risk and he buys a wax museum. And he's going to turn this wax museum into something spectacular. And it doesn't go quite well at first, but his children, now he has children, say, you need something alive in the wax museum. And because he's so ambitious, he has this opportunity and idea to try something different. And so he starts a freak show in the wax museum. That's literally what it was called, a freak show, where he had like the bearded lady and the three-legged man and things like that. And he gets these people who are outcasts from society. And because he was an outcast, he understands them. And he brings them in and says, look, let's use what you have to start a show. And it's wildly successful. People from all over come to see this show. And, it, and that eventually turns into the circus. And everyone wants to go see Barnum's show. Well, he becomes wildly popular. And all of a sudden, the people he has the opportunity to hang out with aren't just lowly and outcasts. They're popular, they're rich, and they're royal. We get the sense through all of this that he is really trying to change the narrative of his life. Like he comes from this lowly spot, and he's not satisfied being there. He wants to rewrite his narrative and make something of himself. And we see that he has this incredible ambition. But as the movie goes on, you see this. It's not so much that he has control over the narrative. It's that the narrative has control over him. It's that the narrative has control over him. He's so convinced that he is insignificant and unworthy that everything he's doing, all that ambition, is simply to prove that he's not insignificant and unworthy. During the show or during the movie, he gets so into his success that he leaves his family behind, the family that loves him. He leaves them behind in order to chase more success. And when he has the opportunity to hang out with the rich and the royal, he leaves behind the people from the freak show, those people who were outcasts, those who really loved him for who he was. Because He's controlled by this narrative that he has to prove he's worthy. He has to prove he's successful. All his ambition comes from this place of deep sense of insignificance. His wife comes to him and says, listen, you don't need everyone to love you, just a few good people. And see, she sees it. She sees what's going on in his own heart, that he's living out this uh, desire to rewrite his story, but it actually has control over him. He was living his life to prove something to himself and to others. He thought he was changing the narrative, but the narrative was actually changing him. He thought he was controlling the narrative, but the narrative had control over him. Let me ask you a tough question. What are you living to prove? I don't ask if you're living to prove something because I really think all of us, including myself, have this thing where we're living to prove something. And maybe that's something to ourselves. Maybe that's something to somebody else. Things from our past often bring a sense of guilt, fear, and shame into our present. So we live our lives fighting against guilt, fear, and shame in trying to control an internal narrative about ourselves. 
When we try to control an internal narrative about ourselves, we aren't controlling it at all. Rather, we are being controlled by it. We try to control the narrative to get freedom, not realizing that the narrative has us captive. Just like with Barnum, he had this great ambition, but his ambition really came from this place of fear, insecurity, unworthiness, and shame. It was a cover-up. And that's the weird thing about how we work. Sometimes we cover up some of the darkest things about ourselves with strength. We, make, we want to make something of ourselves like Barnum to prove that we are somebody because someone hurt us in our past and said we're not somebody. We're so afraid of being nobody that we have this great ambition to be somebody. Or we portray strength because we're so afraid of the shame of being weak. We try to be good because we know in our past we've done something really bad. Our deepest motivations can be from guilt, shame, and fear. You can write down guilt, shame, and fear. It's that thing from the past that you're afraid to call it what it actually is. You did something in your past and you're afraid to admit to yourself what it really is because if you put words on it, you feel like it defines you. It's that thing about you that you feel taints who you are. And it is, you're terrified that it's your identity. Narratives are powerful things that operate inside of us. But let me encourage you this morning, don't cover up. Don't be afraid of where we're going. Because there is a different narrative that God gives us in the midst of our fear, in the midst of our shame, in the midst of our guilt. And that new narrative is the good news of Jesus. And the gospel of Jesus is a much more powerful narrative that can deal with the real you. It can meet you in your guilt. It's not afraid of your shame. And it provides love in the midst of fear. The gospel can handle who you really are. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. It's the very core of Christianity. It's the life, death, resurrection and ascension and promise return of King Jesus. And many people think that the gospel is simply the entry point into the faith. But the reality is the gospel is the reference point for every part of the faith. You can write down entry and reference. Tim Keller says that the gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. It is the A to Z. So if you're a Christian, you don't you don't accept the gospel and then graduate from the gospel. You merely go deeper into the gospel and what Jesus has done for you. The gospel can deal with our shame, guilt, and fear. And this morning, I want to help you change your narrative so that you are empowered by the gospel. We're going to talk this morning about being empowered by forgiveness, empowered by being a child of God, and empowered by God's promises. You ready? All right. We all have this internal conflict that goes on, this internal conflict about things we've done in the past and things we're doing in the present, and it weighs on us. And we wonder, is it who we really are? Does that thing I did, is that 
my identity? Does it define me? And that begins to control the narrative that happens internally. And so then what happens is we fight against that narrative. Maybe we did do something really bad, but we try and convince ourselves. We tell ourselves this story. It wasn't that bad. Or I only did it because they did this to me. And all of a sudden, we're wrapped up in this narrative, fighting the narrative of what we've done and all the guilt that we face. The other side of it is if we've done something in the past, we try and outweigh it in the future. I'm going to be a good person. If I can just do enough good deeds, then I'm an acceptable human being, or God will love me, or I can outweigh the bad things from my past. But none of those narratives are good. Do you already see the trap you're in? If you get into that narrative, all of a sudden you're on the scale of weighing the bad and the good. The gospel is a much more powerful narrative to deal with our guilt. Tim Keller, I'm going to quote him a couple times. Tim Keller says this, I am more sinful than I could ever believe, but I'm more loved and forgiven than I could dare to dream because Jesus died in my place on the cross. That is your narrative. It's not weighing the bad that you've done versus the good. It's not trying to minimize what's happened in the past or maximize the good that you do in the future. This is you. You're more sinful than you could ever believe, but you're more loved and forgiven than you could dare to dream because Jesus Christ died in your place. And when he died in your place, he took all of your guilt on him on the cross. See, the problem is if you're going to look internally and you're going to look at, like, the guilt that you feel, you're actually not objective enough with that. In other words, there's subjective guilt that you feel. What I'm talking about is the objective reality that you have violated God's law and deserve eternal judgment. This is much heavier than the internal guilt you feel. But the cross deals with every single thing that you've done, every violation of God's law, and wipes it clean. And if this is dealt with, then the internal subjective guilt that you feel is dealt with as well. If this changes your identity, then your identity can be changed internally as well. See, we often get it confused. God is the judge. We're not the judge. And so we don't even get to decide if it was bad or wasn't bad. He makes that. He makes the rules. And he says, all who sin fall short of the glory of God, and no one is righteous. And so this whole narrative that we play in our mind of I'm not that bad or I'm more good than I'm bad, we're not even in the right seat when we do that because it's God who has the right to judge who we are. But the gospel tells us that God has judged Jesus in our place. The wrath that you deserve to get for your sin was fully poured out on Jesus Christ in your place. And therefore, there is no more wrath coming to you if you have turned away from your sins and you're in Jesus Christ. That is what Romans 8.1 says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Okay, not at some future date, now. Not some condemnation, no condemnation. Not for the really mature Christians who have it all together, but for every person who is in Jesus Christ. There is now no condemnation for you. Your guilt has been paid for. 
it is, you, listen, you commit sins, but your sins are not your identity if you are in Jesus Christ. And as you begin to believe that, that actually gives you the power to turn away from your sins because they have been fully forgiven by what God has done. And you're free of condemnation. Write down condemnation on your sheet. If you have turned away from your sins and you're turning towards Christ, then the sins that you commit in your life are fully paid for. Your narrative is not how good you are or how bad you've been. Flip to the next slide. Your narrative is this. I am more sinful than I could ever believe, but I'm more loved and more forgiven than I could ever dare to dream because Jesus died in my place on the cross. You can write down sinful, loved, and forgiven. Do you see the incredible power that this gives us to live every day? One of my favorite pastors was this guy named Jack Miller. And Jack Miller would have people in his church come to him and say, Pastor, I see this sin or this failure or this fault in your life. And rather than Jack going into the whole narrative, I'm like, I'm not that bad or I'm good or they don't really know who I am, he would just say this, would you pray for me? It's probably worse than you and I can see. Like my sin that you see, it's probably worse than you can even recognize. And I need the Lord's help. What would enable someone to say that? He believed this narrative. He believed that he was more sinful than he could see, but he was more loved and forgiven than he can dare to dream. And then therefore he didn't have to hide. He didn't have to go to some fake narrative about how he wasn't, had, didn't have sin in his life or prove that he was good because he believed that Jesus had fully paid for what he'd done. And therefore it gave him a new power to turn away from that sin. This is one of the cultural essentials that we want to have at New City. That the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the promised return of Jesus are our identity. And therefore, we can be radically honest with our sin and faults. Like, we're not expecting everyone here to eventually get free of sin until Jesus comes back. We're expecting that as we live life together and as we do church together, we're going to see each other's sin. Everyone is going to see everyone else's sin. But because we have the gospel, we have a new power to deal with the sin in our own lives and the sin that we see in other people. And as we have a radical honesty about our own sin and faults, we lavishly celebrate God's forgiveness. Lavishly celebrate God's forgiveness. Because who doesn't have sin in their life? Who doesn't need forgiveness? Everyone needs forgiveness. And so we show up every Sunday morning, and one of the reasons that we do a confession every Sunday morning is to remind you that you are forgiven. So that you come in not hiding your guilt, but bringing your guilt to God, saying, God, here's who I am again. Are you going to reject me? Is this sin my identity? I'm going to confess it to you and give it to you. And every day, every Sunday when we do the confession, what do you hear? Words of pardon and good news. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You commit sins. You need to turn away from them, but they're not your identity 
God will not reject you when you bring your sin to him because the cross of Jesus is the narrative over you. It's not how good you've been or how bad you've been. It is Jesus. And we go back to the cross over and over again. If you can put up the diagram. This is a, a timeline of your Christian maturity. And what happens right at that split is where you become a Christian. And you realize that there is a gap between God's holiness and your sinfulness. And you hear the gospel and you say, the cross covers over my sin. But as we live out the Christian life, we realize a couple things. God is more holy than we understood when we first became a Christian. And I'm more sinful than I first understood when I became a Christian. So part of your growing in Christ is that you're understanding God's way more holy than I thought last week. And now I'm grasping that more and more. And I'm way more sinful than I thought last month. I'm seeing new sin over and over in my life. But what we tend to do is minimize God's holiness or maximize our holiness and minimize our sin because we don't know what to do with that ever-increasing gap. And so what happens is the cross in our mind stays the same size and we become religious, moralistic, self-justifying, legalistic, prideful people. In other words, God is not as holy as he is, and I'm actually getting way better and more closer to who he is instead of recognizing how holy and different he is. That's where self-righteousness comes in. I'm going to pretend that God is, that like I can actually get close to God by being good. The other side of it is I'm going to pretend that I'm not as bad as I am. And so what happens is when we experience sin in our life, we don't know what to do with it. And the cross in our mind isn't as big as it really is. So that produces guilt, fear, shame, insecurity, and despair because we're experiencing sin in our lives and we don't know what to do with it and we don't think the cross is that big and so we've got to hide who we really are. But the reality is the cross covers all of your sin. The cross bridges the gap between a sinner who is infinitely sinful and a holy God who is infinitely holy. The cross is enough. And as you grow as a Christian, as you see the magnitude of the cross, it will free you to admit who God really is. See, sometimes we hear about things that God cares about, and we go, well, I don't think God really cares about that. And what you're doing is just saying, well, he does care about it, but I don't want to deal with it, and I don't know how to make myself holy, and I don't know how to get up there, so I'm just going to say God doesn't care about that. Or we see sin in our lives, and we say, I'm going to minimize it. I don't know what to do with it. I, don't, I, I didn't know I was this broken. But the reality is the cross covers the gap. All your sins are fully forgiven when you turn away from running your own life and give it to Christ and trust him for forgiveness. The cross is that big, and we have a freedom to admit who we were and who we still are. And that's where the power to change actually comes. If you can't admit who you really are right now, you're never going to change to who God wants you to become because you're still hiding in shame and fear and guilt. Can we do the quote one more time? I am more sinful than I could ever believe but I'm more loved and forgiven than I could dare to dream because Jesus died in my place on the cross. 
So as you look at your life in the past, and as you look at your life in the present, what, what is it? What is that thing that you're afraid to give words to? That thing that you took that really wasn't yours? That person you slept with that you shouldn't have slept with? The rage that's inside, that thing that you're addicted to? If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. You're forgiven. You can put words to it because when you say it, it isn't your identity. Your identity is the cross. There is no condemnation. And when Jesus went to the cross, he took on your sinful identity. The wrath of God was poured out on him, and he took your place as a sinner on the cross. The gospel scandals, even as I say that, Jesus took your place as a sinner on the cross. It's like, no way, Jesus is holy. But that's the whole point. He switched places with you and took the punishment and condemnation that you deserve, and you switch places with him. You become a beloved child of God. See, we're empowered by forgiveness, but we're also empowered by being children of God. 1 John 3, 1 says this, See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children, and we are. Some versions of the Bible say, behold. Like, not just see with your eyes here, but your spiritual eyes. So what do you see? What looks bigger to you than the fact that through Jesus you've become a beloved child of God? Is it your failures? Is it that thing that was done to you? Is it your rejection? Is it your inadequacy? Because if you're constantly seeing that and you're not seeing how much God loves you and that you're a beloved child of God, you will go back to the cover-up. You'll work to prove you're somebody. You'll look for your identity in that man or woman. You'll improve yourself to prove something to someone else. You're just trapped by a narrative. But God sees all that and says, look, I want you to see this. You are my child. And I deeply love you. And nothing you can do can cause you to fall out of my grasp. You are a beloved child of God. You do not have to prove anything to anybody because you already are somebody to God. He loves you and you're his child. And it's really not even about you. Like when you believe this, it doesn't make God make you his child. He already sees you as his child. And you get to learn how to believe what's already true. It's not about you even. It's about what Jesus did for you. One of the most profound verses in the Bible is in John 17. Jesus is praying before he goes to the cross. And he says this, I am in them and you are in me. Jesus is praying so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. The Father loves you as he loves Jesus. The first sermon I preached was in a nursing home about 12 years ago, and I preached on Romans 8. And in the very back left of this, of the of, um, of the place that we were meeting was this man who had a little bit of a mental disability and he loved Jesus. And so I started to preach and I was ready to preach this very profound sermon, my first sermon ever. And from the back row, he yells, hey! I've not experienced that before because it was my first sermon. He goes, hey! 
was like, okay, what? And he goes, did you know that Jesus loves you as much as he loves his son? And it hit me like a ton of bricks. And it took me about 30 seconds to recover and get into my sermon because what he had said in 10 seconds, I thought, was more profound than anything I could say in 30 minutes. But it's true. The love that God has for Jesus is the love that God has for you as his, ch- as his child. And one of our cultural essentials here at New City Fellowship is that we continually celebrate the love of God for his children. We continually celebrate the love of God that he has for his child in delight that we get to be children of the Father. We watched Zorro last weekend. And in the second Zorro movie, his son, Zorro's son, um, doesn't really like his real dad, but likes Zorro, not realizing that Zorro is his real dad. And he follows Zorro around, and his real dad, Don Diego de la Vega, he just kind of like ignores because he really likes Zorro, and he delights in Zorro. And there's this moment in the movie where Zorro takes off his mask, and the little boy sees that his father is Zorro. And the delight in his eyes that he gets to be the child of Zorro. Friends, when you understand that you get to be the child of the Father, it will change the way you live. And what we want to go back to over and over and over at New City Fellowship is that we are children of the Father. He loves us. He cares deeply about us. He promises never to leave us or forsake us. I love how that verse ends in in 1 John 3. It says, and so we are. Over and over and over again, we want to say, we are children of God. We want to remind each other of that. We want to encourage each other with that. And we want to be empowered by the reality that we are God's children. And as God's children, we are empowered by his promises. As people who proclaim the good news and go out to demonstrate the good news, we have his promises. The promises of God are kind of confusing. Some people see them as personal guarantees of blessing that once I name and claim the promises, I'm not going to have any problems in my life. That's not true at all, okay? This week I was at a hotel and I stayed one night in the hotel and this thought crossed my mind. I was like, I think my life would be awesome if I could just spend one night a month at a hotel. And I was like, Lord, can you make that happen for me? And then my mind started to run. I was like, you know what? I don't want just one night at a hotel. I would like to live in a hotel. And then it just kept running. I said, you know what? Not just any hotel. I want to live in a hotel on Sunny Isles. I want to live in a hotel on Sunny Isles on the top floor. Lord Jesus, I'm claiming that promise. There is no promise that claims that. Listen, the promises of God are always active. We don't need to name and claim them. They're always on, and there is no off button for them. God doesn't stop being God. His promises are true, but they're not, all, they're not guarantees of personal blessing. They're actually much better than that. The promises of God or are for God's sent people. Write down sent. Part of our understanding of who we are as New City Fellowship is that we're empowered by the gospel so that we can be sent out with the gospel. And the promises of God are for us as we're empowered and sent to share the gospel and to demonstrate God's kingdom. As we commit to not be a sitting church, but a sent church. 
Because if we're sent, we will go out and we will face difficulties and opposition and challenges and we'll come back to shame, guilt, and fear. And we'll be afraid to not be strong. We'll be afraid to struggle. And that's where the promises of God come in. The promises of God are about giving sent people certainty of God's character and commitment. Then I, go ahead and go to the next slide. I want you to read that first line in bold, and then I'll read the scripture. Because I want you to see how many promises there are for God's people. So, the promise... There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Therefore, I tell you everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. The one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. Jesus said, so don't worry, saying, what will we eat and what will we drink and what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. This is the last one. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us, will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. All these promises are for you. They're for you. They're there to empower you there there as you go out and you're sent, which promise is it that strikes you? They're all for you to give you confidence in God's character and his commitment to you. And part of the culture we are trying to create is where we don't have to pretend that we're strong. We can admit we're weak because we have the promises of God. Because of the promises of God, you do not have to pretend you have it all together. Because of the promises of God, you don't have to wait until you're a mature Christian 
to go and be a sent Christian. Because of the promises of God, you don't have to be a perfect disciple before you make other disciples. Because of the promises of God, you do not have to be afraid of risks. Because it's in the risk that you will experience the fullness of God's promises. You don't have to wonder if he stopped working in us or around us. You don't have to wonder if you've fallen outside of his plan because the promises of God are true and they are for you. You're a beloved child of God. You're forgiven. You're sent with all his promises. They're all true. Guilt, shame, and fear are not your narrative. Though your past is dark because of the promises, your future is bright with God. Let us hold on to these things. What could it look like if we fully embraced this as our culture? Not guilt, shame, and fear, but being forgiven, being God's beloved children, and holding on fully to his promises. We are empowered by the gospel, and we are sent with it. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, Thank you. Thank you for your word. We pray that we be encouraged by it this morning. We thank you that we don't have anything to prove to you or anybody else. We don't have to hide who we really are. We don't have to worry about calling that thing from our past what it really is. The cross is our identity. Jesus bought us forgiveness with his blood. We are your beloved children, and you are completely committed to us. God's people said.